Well, we are here on the third Sunday of Advent. One of the strange things about this particular year, of course, is that everything is so very truncated. Uh, And so um, Christmas is coming quickly, only nine days away from Christmas Eve. And so so we are here in the third Sunday of Advent. We're looking at light and life and kind of taking a look at the Gospel of John. And so this morning, we're going to read from John 9. Now, here's the thing. This is a passage about blindness. So I'm going to ask you all to do something I've never asked, I don't think, a congregation to do, which is, and it's very dangerous, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as I read this. Now let me be very clear, this is a lengthy passage, which means that as soon as I get done, I would like for you to nudge your neighbor to make sure that he or she is still awake by the time I have finished it, all right? So if you fall asleep, that's fine. But try to wake up if you can once I'm done, okay? So here is the story. So let's close our eyes. I will keep my eyes open. And let's the rest of us close our eyes as we read this from John 9. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust and made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, Go wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. The man went and washed and saw. Soon the town was buzzing. His relatives and those who year after year had seen him as a blind man begging were saying, Why, isn't this the man who we knew who sat here and begged? And others said, It's him all right. But others objected. It's not the same man at all. It just looks like him. He said, It's me, the very one. They said, How did your eyes get opened? A man named Jesus made a paste and rubbed it on my eyes and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. I did what he said. When I washed, I saw. So where is he? I don't know. They marched the man to the Pharisees. This day when Jesus made the paste and healed his blindness was the Sabbath. And the Pharisees grilled him again on how he had come to see. He said, he put a clay paste on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, obviously this man can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others countered, how can a bad man do miraculous God revealing things like this? There was a split in their ranks. They came back to the blind man. You're the expert. He opened your eyes. What do you say about him? The blind man said, he's a prophet. The Jews didn't believe it. They didn't believe the man was blind to begin with. So they called the parents of the man, now bright-eyed with sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? So how is it that he now sees? His parents said, we know he's our son. We know he was born blind, but we don't know how he came to see. We haven't a clue about who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He's a grown man and can speak for himself. Now, his parents were talking like this because they were intimidated by the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who took a stand that this was the Messiah would be kicked out of the meeting place. That's why his parents said, ask him. He's a grown man. So they called the man back a second time, the man who had been blind, and told him, Give credit to God. We know this man is an imposter. He replied, I know nothing about that one way or the other, but I know one thing for sure. I was blind, I now see. 
they said. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I have told you over and over, and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Are you so eager to become his disciples? And with that, they jumped all over him. You might be a disciple of that man, but we are disciples of Moses. We know for sure that God spoke to Moses, but we have no idea where this man even comes from. The man replied, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact that he is, he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. They said, you're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? Then they threw him out in the street. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and went out and found him. He asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man said, point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe in him. And Jesus said, you are looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? Master, I believe, the man said, and worshipped him. Jesus then said, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear, so that those who have never seen will see, and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. And some Pharisees overheard him and said, does that mean you're calling us blind? Jesus said, if you were really blind, you would be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every." fault and failure. You may open your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, be with us on this, the third Sunday of Advent, that we might know that we are blind, that we might know that we need sight given by you. Amen and amen. All right, wake up. (laughs) Truth be told, In many ways, when it comes to a passage like this from the Gospel of John, it would be easy enough to not actually try to interpret it or preach from it at all because of the fact that John, unlike some of the other Gospel writers, he almost always tells a story with the theology being very clear, right? So for this this instance, the main theme is this, that yes, it is a story about blindness, as we know, But in reality, it's not a story about physical blindness, as you can tell. It's actually a story about being spiritually blind. So as John tells us this story, he's trying to help us to ask the question, are we spiritually blind? Not only that, John always does a great job of bringing people into the story. John's a great storyteller. And like any good storyteller, he's always inviting us to ask questions like, who am I in this passage? And who, 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 what role do I play? That's what a great storyteller does. We talked about that just a month or so ago. And so one of the ways that we begin by looking at this story is saying, who are we? Well, there are the disciples. Usually we're the disciples, but the disciples play a very small role in this particular passage. So let's not be the, pa- let's not be the disciples. There's Jesus. And it's always bad form to say that you see yourself in Jesus in these stories, right? So we won't, we'll say that we're not Jesus in this particular passage, okay? And then there are the blind men, or the blind man. 
Now, the blind man, of course, is a very interesting character in this particular story. One of the interesting things about it is that it kind of interweaves with what we talked about last week in the third chapter. You remember, perhaps, Nicodemus and and Jesus said uh, that you must be born again from above. And uh, we talked about what Stan Johnson said, which is that when you use that kind of born language, it implies that you can mature, that the growing process, that a growing in your faith is a lengthy process. No one is born and then becomes an adult overnight. Likewise, spiritually, we are born, but then it's a growing process where we begin to grow in our clarity of who Jesus is. And it kind of, sometimes we, we know who Jesus is. Sometimes we think, oh, wait, that's not who Jesus is. And you begin to discover a new who he is. It's a, it's a process. We saw this in the story. Maybe you noticed it as you were listening that at the beginning, the blind man says, well, well, I know who this is. It's a man, and his name is Jesus. And then later on, after some questioning, he says, well, he's a prophet. And then later on, he says, well, he's someone who's been sent from God. And, and then later on, he says, well, he's the son of man, which has this kind of messianic undertones. And then at the very end, maybe you noticed, he worshipped Jesus. And so what you see is this whole process from saying, well, he was just a man, all of a sudden to this very end here after some time where he says, oh, no, I know he must be God. And so I am going to worship him. It is this kind of steps, this maturation process that we saw in John 3. And so one of the things that we understand is if we want to grow closer to Jesus, we have to realize that we have much to learn. This week, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of something that a pastor said. He had been a pastor for decades, and he was looking back at his time of being a pastor, and he he said, you know what? What I realize is this. What I realize is that when I left seminary, he says, I know actually much less about God than I did when I left seminary. But I have learned, the things that I have learned about God since then take my breath away. What does, that, what does that mean exactly? Well, I, I think it means a little bit like what my mother used to always say about 18-year-olds, which is at 18, you're smarter than you've ever been before, and you're smarter than you will ever be again. Does that make sense? That as you continue to age, what you begin to realize as you get older is that you didn't quite know as much as you thought you knew. You, you were pretty certain, oh, I got this whole thing figured out. But as you get older, you realize, oh, wait, I didn't know quite as much as I thought I did. But then you also begin to learn some other things. This is the reality when it comes to following Jesus, is that as you continue, you think, oh, I know everything about Jesus. And then as you keep going, like, wait, that's not what I thought. And you, but yet you continue to learn. This is the reality that we see when you go from being blind to slowly beginning to see. So as I thought about this particular passage and what this pastor said, I did some of my own kind of reflections about what I learned, what I've learned since seminary. And some of them, many of them are actually things that we find here in this particular story. For instance, uh, one of the things that's clear in this story is that God, Jesus, loves to work through that which is weak. It's interesting, is it not, that Jesus doesn't work through the Pharisees. 
I mean, the Pharisees, you would have thought this is who he would have worked through, right? Because these are the people who know Scripture well. They know who God is. They love hanging out in the synagogue and talking about God and arguing about God. And they know God, right? Like, like no one else, you would think. And so you would think that Jesus would have said, well, man, these people know God. I'm going to work through them. But he doesn't. He works instead through this man who was born blind, an outcast, really. Now, most of us know that this is how Jesus works. Remember in the Old Testament, his main spokesperson is Moses, someone who struggled with actually speaking, maybe not the best spokesperson. The main disciple, the one who was going to reflect the humility of Jesus Christ was Peter, who was a massive hothead and had an issue with even thinking about being humble. Remember in this season that the baby, the son of God, was born to an unwed and oppressed mother? We, we know this. Most of us have heard this. We think, oh, yeah, we know God works through the, the weak and not through the strong. But my guess is that most of us struggle with genuinely believing that that's the kind of God we serve. I know, as I said, that when I was at seminary, uh, we learned a lot of things. Uh, we studied a lot of scripture. We talked about interpretation. You, you had to learn the Greek and the Hebrew or at least pass it. Um, you had to, uh, we took a year of speech. We took a year of preaching. We took some other preaching classes. And I mean, by the time you get out, you, you think, man, I know so much. That all I have to do is just regurgitate these things and people are just going to be blown over by how amazing I am, right? And, and they're going to go out and they're going to say, oh, we're going to go out. We're going to live for Jesus. We're going to do these incredible things. We're going to change the world, right? This is what you think because then you know so much. And you can't help, it's not seminary's fault. You just can't help but think, well, all, all that needs to happen is if I'm smart enough and if I'm educated enough and if I'm prepared enough, then when I preach these sermons to people, it's going to change everything. And so what I noticed was the first couple of years, especially out of seminary, I would spend an inordinate amount of time on these sermons and I would try to bring in some of the Greek or the Hebrew and I'd, I'd try to think theologically about all these things and I'd interweave a personal story and I'd, I'd package God up perfectly. I thought, oh, I would almost begin to cry. It was so good. And so I would come in and then I would begin to preach and usually within about five to seven minutes, about half of the people in the congregation were asleep. And the half who were awake were looking at the half who were sleeping and were incredibly jealous. <laughs> now, I may be kidding a little bit, but I'm not kidding a whole lot. But then as I continued to get to know these people, what I began to understand is that, well, the woman who was always sleeping was married to a man who's, who lost his job, and so she was working two jobs and working up late at night. And the man who was sleeping, well, his, his, his daughter, she was wrestling with drug issues, and he didn't always know exactly where she was. And as much as I may not have wanted to hear it, the reality is this, those 15 or 20 minutes, I used to preach only for 15 or 20 minutes, those 15 or 20 minutes... When they're in that quiet sanctuary with just one person droning on, gave them the greatest respite that they had had in days. And as much as I didn't want to admit it, the reality is the boringness of my sermon was what God actually worked through in order to give rest to the troubled. 
Probably, my guess is the greatest sermon that I have ever preached was the one that I didn't actually really even preach. It came on the heels of a difficult week for Megan and I. I've shared this before. In between Shaughnessy and Adelie, our first and second born, when, when Megan had a, had, a, had a miscarriage. And a few days later, there were complications from that. And so on Saturday night, we were there at the hospital late at night and just wrestling through with that and trying to make sure that Meg was okay and that everything was going to be okay. And as much as the reality is that everything wasn't going to be okay and that we knew that. Usually on Saturday nights, I'm, I'm home. I like to go home very early. I'm, I'm finishing touches on sermons. I'm going to bed to make sure I get a good eight or nine hours of sleep so that I can come fully prepared on Sunday morning. And that particular day, the next day, Sunday morning, when I show up, I showed up, I was spent physically, emotionally, and spiritually probably more than anything else. And I did my best, and I tried to preach, and I preached for a little bit. And then I just broke down. And I was just there in front of everybody, and I was weeping, and I was, I was so bothered by the fact that all this had happened and the fact that I wasn't in control, and I, I always want people to think that I'm strong and that I can do all of these things, and all I was doing was just sitting there, just weeping, knowing I had no answers for them that day. And yet it was in the midst of that service and in stories that I began to hear after that that I realized that more than any other sermon I would ever preach at that church, it was that non-sermon, that showing of weakness and pain in the midst of darkness in which God actually worked more than in any other sermon that I ever preached there. We may know that God works through weaknesses, but by and large, we'd much prefer to have a different kind of God. I also noticed that one of the things we see in this passage is the critical importance of Jesus being here physically. Whenever he's there with the the man, the blind man, you notice he doesn't just say hi from afar. He doesn't say, how you doing? He doesn't even just say, hey, you're healed. Rather, he shows up and he, he, he begins to make this mud. It's out of his own saliva, right? And, and, and he makes this mud and then he touches the blind man. He touches his eyes. He has him go off to the pole of Siloam. Then, then after he knows that he's been kicked out of the synagogue, he goes, he finds the man. He doesn't just say, oh, well, tell him, hey, I love him. No, no, he goes and finds the man, and he wants him to look at him and say, you are looking at the Son of Man even now. There's this incredible nature of the importance of Jesus being physically there. I think typically when we think about this, we just think, oh, well, that was nice that Jesus was here, but mostly he was just here in order to die and be raised again. And those things are of critical importance. But I think it is incredibly crucial that Jesus was physically present on this earth and with others. 
Again, when I came out of seminary or in the midst of seminary, what you're doing is you're always learning about how do you deal with people who are struggling. You know that when you're in a church, you're going to be having people who are struggling, people who are questioning things. And so you, you try to learn how do I listen. And you, you learn answers to kind of big questions, questions of theodicy, as we call it. You call it something that nobody understands so that, that then you have an excuse for not understanding it yourself, right? And that just means the problem of evil. How do I deal with the problem of evil. And you think, I got all these answers and I know how to listen. This is going to be great. And you, you come out and you're, you're ready to go. And then as I find, found myself, then you're in the hospital room with a teenage boy who just died from a gunshot wound. And the family is laying on top of him, screaming no. Or you officiate or you preside over a funeral of a young child or of a father who's much too young to die and leave behind his children or you sit across the table from a husband and wife and the wife is weeping uncontrollably because she's just discovered that her husband has had an affair. And when you're there in those moments, you, you begin to say something and you realize how empty those words are and so you breathe them back in. And then you remember something that you learned and so you begin to try to say that and then you realize that those words aren't going to mean anything and you breathe them back in. And after many of these moments, what you begin to see is that the greatest gift that you can give to them is by just simply staying with them. And though even though every bit and piece of you wants to just say something nice and trite that'll kind of make it better and then get out of Dodge, the greatest gift is to just simply be physically with them. See, one of the things I think that we far too often we just kind of stress aside or throw aside is the fact of Jesus' physical presence and what difference that made when he was on this earth. Jesus, it seems to me, if we think about it, well, I suppose he could have just come at 30 and all of a sudden just gone up on the cross and, and be taken off. But no, he decided to spend three years in ministry, three years physically with people. And I think that far too often we don't take that seriously enough. You see, if we want to reflect Jesus incarnate, God with us, then we have to make sure that we are physically present in the midst of people's darknesses or in the midst of their joys. It's why we talk so much about being physically present in neighborhoods. It's why we say to people, we need to go and be on mission out into the community and out into the world. We can't just stay away and just send money or send cards or send words and thoughts. No, we have to actually go and be with them. Jesus' physical presence as God is absolutely critical to understanding who God is. The last thing it seems to me that we see in here is this reality, which is that God, if we understand God, if we see God clearly, is always going to surprise us. 
And the reality is that most of us aren't always all that comfortable, especially those of us who think we really have God figured out. Did you notice this? This is such a great story with the Pharisees. Did you notice how doggedly determined they were to not believe that Jesus had done anything? They simply could not believe it, right? What are the the people saying? They're saying, oh, well, this must just look like the same blind man. And then they begin to tell him, oh, no, you must not have actually been blind from birth. And then they bring in the parents and they say, oh, is this the one you say was blind? And then they keep asking him again and again. They keep bringing him in. Now tell us again. Please tell me what exactly happened until finally he's so fed up that he gives a somewhat comedic answer where he says to them, oh, are you actually wanting to become a disciple? They, of course, didn't think it was funny, right? And so they kick him out. But the Pharisees, they could not believe it. They said, no, we know who God is. He fits in this box. It looks nothing like you, Jesus. And there's no way that this miracle could ever have occurred. One of the great struggles, it seems to me, that we have, especially pastors, if I can be so honest, is about being able to be surprised by God. Here's the truth. I didn't learn this at seminary. It was within the first few years at seminary. When you come out, you think, man, God's going to do everything through this. As I said, he's going to change everyone. And then what you begin to notice is you have people who come to you and say, hey, I've been changed by Jesus. And you think, that's great. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm ready to give. I'm ready to be. I'm going to do it. And then you never see him again. Or they come and they say, hey, I've been, I've been changed. I, you know, can, I get a, can I get a little bit of money? And, and that would be really helpful. And you're like, okay, sure. I'm glad that you've changed. And I'm going to give you this money anyways. But then when you never see them come back again, and when it seems like things haven't really changed, and they just come back and ask for more, then you begin to grow a little bit cynical. Or, and this always happens within the church or any other business, once you begin to get to know it, you begin to see just how human it actually is. And if a pastor is honest, the reason why they know how human it is is because they look in the mirror every day. And you just begin to stop expecting God to actually make any radical change in anybody. One of the interesting things that happened in my time here that's happened, and I apologize, I'm going to bring this up one last time for at least a little while because I keep bringing it up and I realize that and that gets really annoying for people, but I'm going to do it anyways, which is Great Banquet. Here's what I want to say. Just listen, hear me out. Several years ago now, I had a pastor who was very familiar with Great Banquet come up to me and say, well, I want you to know this. You're going to be surprised, but Great Banquet is really going to change people's lives in in ways beyond what you could imagine. Now, why would a pastor say that to another pastor? Well, I'll tell you why. Because pastors think we have this whole thing figured out. We think we know exactly how God works. And you can't do a three-day retreat like this. That's bollocks. We know it doesn't work. You have to shorten it to two days. And you can't have so many talks. That's ridiculous. People are going to be bored out of their gores. Don't do that. You can't do that. And most importantly enough, the reason why pastors know that it can't work is because pastors aren't in control of it. Every good pastor knows God only works when the pastor is there. And yet, again and again, as I have watched people who have gone through it and be changed, I have both thought, oh, man, and been amazed at how God has radically changed people's lives. And I have had to fight my own pharisaical ways. 
and saying, well, they'll probably just go back to the way they were before. But I have seen year after year people be changed, men who all of a sudden who have seemed to care only about their jobs, now they care about their faith and their family, women who come through and have been healed from things that they have been wrestling with for decades even, and I have seen the way that God has changed them. And I have had to admit that I have been surprised by that. But I have also been changed my own faith because of seeing the work of God. But now here's the thing. In order to be able to see those things, we have to do what the Pharisees were unwilling to do. You see, truth be told, when it comes to this particular story, most pastors and most devoted followers of Jesus who have been following God for many years, the person, the people that we are most tempted to be is actually not the blind man, but is the Pharisee. You see, the problem is the Pharisees thought that they saw everything so clearly. They thought they knew exactly who God was. They knew exactly how God worked. And because they thought they saw so well, they were not open to actually seeing anything that God was doing through Jesus. They thought, let me say this again, they thought they saw God so clearly that they missed Jesus. I love what Dale Bruner, he makes this prayer out of this, out of this particular passage And he says, I am just praying. I am praying that we would be divinely protected from knowing too much and being too sure and being too certain that we understand everything about God. The Pharisees' problem was that they were unwilling to admit that they may not have it all together. They were unwilling to admit that they may not know every single answer. And because of that, It ends up they were actually the most blind of anyone in the story. This is the paradox of the passage. That those who think they see too well are more than likely blind. And those who are blind and can admit that blindness are the ones who are most open to actually seeing God. As I thought about this sermon, I realized, in some ways, this is more of a Lenten sermon than an Advent sermon. Lent's a season of contemplation, a season of confession. And I thought, well, I should probably just not even do this and wait and do this for Lent. And then I realized that there was no way I was not going to preach this. So, but I also began to realize this, which is that Advent is a season of the upside-down gospel. I already said it's the season when we celebrate the fact that the Son of God was born to an unwed and oppressed mother. It's the season when we celebrate the fact that the King of Kings was born in a stable. It's the season when we celebrate the fact that the first group who even heard about the birth of Jesus were the shepherds who were the lowest caste of all society. So why should it also not be the season when we talk about the reality and the paradox of the fact that it's the blind who see and it's those who see who are perhaps most endangered of being blind? 
The truth be told, it is only when we can admit that we don't see nearly as well as we would like, only when we can admit that we need help from the Almighty, only then that we are open to actually seeing Jesus. The last words that the Pharisees said to Jesus are somewhat haunting. They say this, We are not blind, are we? We are not blind, are we? My suggestion, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that how we answer that question will determine whether we stay in the darkness or whether we are able to move towards the light of Jesus Christ. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. May we be a people who are able to admit our blindness that we might see the light of Christ. Let us pray. God, it is easy for us to think that we see so well. And yet the reality is that we are all too often blind. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to admit that we need your lens, that we need eyes that have been touched by you, that we might for the first time fully be able to see you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.